You're listening to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where you have three philosophers sitting down and chopping it up after a long day of conferencing. I'm sitting here with Dr. Richard Lee. Richard, what's going on? What's your drink? My drink today is Reisdorf Kolsch, which is mm. a great summertime beer. Kolsch is a cologne style. Very refreshing. It's in my category of mowing the lawn beers. A German beer is a mowing the lawn beer? Is that really? I thought that was like a Bud, you know, a cold style. But really, is that a Trappist beer? I mean, that's, that's... No, no, no. This is very light, very refreshing, and uh, follows the Reinheitsgebot, so it only has three ingredients. It's a great summertime beer. I'm looking forward to having a drink with you one day, and also, I realize it scares the shit out of me. Because <laughs> I don't know what the hell you're going to pull off. And he can't find his ascot. And he can't find his ascot. <laughs> So that sounds like a great drink. Let's hear your rant rapes. So today, my rant is a little embarrassing, but I am ranting about gout. So it turns out I have in the past suffered from gout. I've been on medication and I, for some reason, decided to go off it. And yesterday I got an attack and I don't know if you've ever had it, but it is like among the most painful things you could ever imagine. It's a condition in which your joint and your foot swells up and you can't get any relief at all. Just nothing. It doesn't help to raise it. It doesn't help to lower it. It doesn't help to ice it. There's just no relief. Ooh, I'm so sorry, Rick. That's yeah, awful. Man, sorry for you, man. Well, you know, lift your spirits up and let's hear your rant. Oh, let's rave. hear your rave. I'm sorry. Let's hear so your rave. My rave is the tradition of offering pizza and beer to people who help you move. Uh, oh my God! Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Sec- seconded. <laughs> I, I helped my friend Will McNeil, who's also the chair of our department. A bunch of us helped him move just the bigger stuff. And in the afternoon, when they brought out the pizza and beer, and we just sat around talking, we were slightly exhausted, stinky, sweaty. It was just a, <laughs> a, a wonderful time. So I'm raving about that tradition. Keep it up, people. I thought that just worked for teenagers and people in their mid to late 20s. That still works for men of uh, a certain age? I'll tell you who it does not work for, Lee M. Johnson, Esquire. (laughs) (laughs) I am not the friend who helps you move. (laughs) (laughs) But you'll come for the pizza and beer. 100%. I'll bring the pizza and beer. (laughs) All right. So, Lee, what's going on? What's your rant? What's your rave? What's your drink? And not in that order. Okay, so I'm going to start off with my drink, which today is Fresca, and only Fresca. Oh. First of all, Fresca, call me. Second of all, I am drinking a non-alcoholic drink today in solidarity with one of my very good friends who just celebrated two years of sobriety. All oh. right. I'm not going to say his name. He knows who he is, and he listens, and we love you, and we're super proud of you. My rant today is... Patriarchy. Going out on a limb there, Lee. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the hill you want to die on? (laughs) Yes, it is the hill that I want to die on. (laughs) I don't know if you guys have heard of this thing, patriarchy, but it sucks, not for you, but for the rest of us. So we're recording this, I guess, two days after the Taliban has retaken 
Kabul and really retaken all of Afghanistan. They've already closed down schools for women. They've closed down beauty shops. Women who are in positions of leadership or power are literally in fear of their lives right now. I want to say that it strikes me that the United States has been in Afghanistan for 20 years, which means that there are women in Afghanistan who are 20 years old, who've lived a life free of these kinds of constraints. And suddenly they're basically going back to the Middle Ages in a matter of 48 hours. And their moms remember and their grandmothers remember what that was like. But this has never been their lives. And I cannot imagine how horrifying and devastating that would be. The situation in Afghanistan is a mess. But I really genuinely fear for the young women in Afghanistan whose lives are about to dramatically change for the worse. All right. So my rave today is another podcast that I've just recently gotten into, which is called Stuff the British Stole. And it's actually pretty amazing. It comes out of Australia. I don't know a lot about the hosts, but it's just episodes about stuff the British stole. And it tells these detailed stories behind, you know, tea, art, all the things that you would imagine. They find both firsthand accounts of people who are descendants of either the inheritors of these things or the thieves of these things. And yeah, so I highly want to recommend stuff the British stole podcast. It sounds like a great tour of the British Museum. Yeah, right. Walk through and point at shit. Right. (laughs) So, Charles, what are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about today? I'm feeling all manly light and I'm going to have a Hemingway daiquiri. So daiquiri with a fish. (laughs) The daiquiri with a fish. Right. Well, actually, bits of the fish that never made it to shore is what's in Hemingway daiquiri. Gross. No, it's a daiquiri. It's it's rum-based, but it's got like a really nice frothy egg topping on it, and it's very tasty. I'm sorry, you lost me at daiquiri with an egg. (laughs) See, see, that's the courageous part of it. So that's my drink. My rant is, and it's certainly connected to Lee's rant, and my rant is the really piss-poor, shitty way in which the Biden administration has conducted the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. I'm not going to argue that American troops should not be there. I'm not arguing that at all. Should never have been there. And I'm not going to argue that we're not long past time to get out. But what infuriates me and what links me to what Lee's concerns are in her rant is the way that no one just decided to plan this fucker out. So you've got these desperate people, especially those who've risked their lives against the Taliban, who decided to provide support and aid in what was artfully known as the American mission in Afghanistan. And it's just, you know, fuck the geopolitical concerns and domestic politics and how this will look or make Biden's competency appear. What I'm just horrified is that there are people who are going to die in really ugly, fucked up ways. And is that 100% avoidable? No, because there was no good way to get out, but it could have been better. So that's my rant. My rave today is, to be honest, it's a brutal rave, but people coming to grips with the limits of imperial power. And hopefully the hard lesson that the United States has to learn is that having the biggest guns and the most soldiers and the biggest military budget does not mean you can reconstruct the world in any image that you feel. Colonialism fails. It always fails. And it leaves deep wounds to those who've been subject to it. I think the Taliban are horrible human beings and do a huge disservice to Islam. 
You know, we should have a future episode on interventionism because it is such a complicated international issue. I wrote my dissertation on truth commissions and so obviously did a lot of work on South Africa, Rwanda, Argentina. And when I was working through these conflicts, I was thinking, how did people not go in? Like, how do people not go in and help? And then we went into Afghanistan, you know, and you think, yeah, it's just really hard to separate humanitarian intervention and imperial nation building. It's really tough. And what you were saying in terms of the circumstances and the conditions of women in Afghanistan, you know, a lot of activists, a lot of global feminist activists were trying to bring attention to this throughout the 90s. And unfortunately, you know, I don't know. I don't know if the United States just did it badly. I don't know if it's just an impossible thing. I don't know if it's just a question of the type of national social change that has to happen has to be internal. But I don't know what that means for populations at the nth level of oppression and marginalization in terms of how can they begin to think about ways to transform their lives, develop agency, empower themselves. So I think you're right. We probably should have a conversation about um, interventionism and the fine line between humanitarianism and colonialism. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Guess who's in the hot seat today? It's Dr. Lee Johnson. So, Lee, what are we talking about today? Speaking of colonialism and interventionism, do you know what those things always are accompanied by? Guns. And guns is the topic for our episode today. So before this season started, when we were talking about what topics we wanted to cover this season, I suggested guns. And I'm pretty sure that my explanation for what I wanted to talk about was just like, guns, why so many? What the fuck? (laughs) And that is really more or less the whole of my position on guns. I'm not a gun owner. I have shot guns before. I've gotten a gun permit before because for a very brief period in the 90s, I worked for a special effects company, worked on some films, and all the special effects people had to be trained in firearms. But I also am particularly interested in this topic because I live in Tennessee. Tennessee is not only an open carry state, but a permitless open carry state. Oh, shit. And and we have extremely lax laws about where you can carry a gun. You can carry a gun in a bar. You can carry a gun in a park. You can carry a gun to a church in Tennessee. We also don't have red flag laws. So if you're a stalker or a domestic abuser, the police can't take your guns away from you. I'm also... A teacher and anyone who has been in education in the last 20 years has certainly been directly or indirectly traumatized by school shootings. You know, we have students who have grown up practicing active shooter drills in the way that when I was a student, I practiced atomic bomb drills or tornado drills, things like that. As an aside, the classroom should be the safest space that you are ever in in your entire life, mm. period. And it is not that anymore. It really worries me. And from what I understand, there are more guns in America than there are Americans. Right? There are something like 150 guns for every 100 people in the United States. We don't need that many guns. When are we going to stop, right? Like, I think a lot of us said with the Newtown school shooting, all right, now is when we're going to have real gun reform. Right. Like when little children are being shot, now is the time. And we just 
rolled on past that um, and made absolutely no changes whatsoever. And then there was the Las Vegas shooting not too many years ago. Mass shootings have happened in the United States almost every year for the past 25 or 30 years. And I just feel like, where are we now? Like, who are we now? So, yeah, today we're going to be talking about guns. So, Lee, you said 150 guns per every 100 people is more than we need. And what I'm wondering is, what exactly is the need in the first place? Yeah, I'm also wondering that, yeah. Um, So I'm not a hunter. I guess I kind of get it, and I don't think I begrudge hunters anything. And so I could imagine you take a long gun for, for hunting. But other than that, what's the other need for having a gun? I don't have an answer for that because my point of view is that guns only make situations more dangerous. They don't make them less dangerous. Right. Well, I think that's a legitimate question and certainly part of the the National Rifle Association's pitch for guns is home defense. That you have to have a weapon because if someone breaks into your home, then you should have a way to legitimately lawfully defend yourself, your property, and your family, you know property is obviously more important than family because this is United States. And certainly that's the background for a lot of not just open carry or concealed carry laws in many states, but also what's known as stand your ground. Right. If one feels threatened, one has the sort of legal right to defend himself with even deadly force. And also castle doctrine. Ohio does not have stand your ground, but Ohio does have castle doctrine, where if someone enters your home and you are unable to evade them, then you have the right to throw down on them. So I would say those are the the points that are argued. I'm not arguing those points, though I recognize that you do have home invasions, you do have threatening circumstances out in public. So I understand all that. So I'm not necessarily supporting or arguing that, but I'm saying that's what's explicitly asserted as a justification to own weapons. I just want to say a couple of things about both Stand Your Ground and Castle Doctrine states, of which I'm sure it's going to come as no surprise to anyone. Tennessee is both. One of the things that is problematic about the Stand Your Ground statute is that exactly as Charles just said, you only have to feel threatened, right? Like there doesn't actually have to be a threat. So really, it's more or less carte blanche permission to use deadly force. Same thing with the Castle Doctrine. The Castle Doctrine, if someone enters your home, you have no obligation whatsoever to try to avoid a deadly encounter, to try to avoid violence. You have carte blanche permission to shoot as soon as you see the whites of their eyes. I, I think it's based upon how the law is written. In Ohio, you actually have a legal obligation to avoid that confrontation. So if someone comes through your front door, if your back door is right there and open, then you are actually obligated to leave. Yeah, that's not true in Tennessee. Yeah, Yeah, in in Ohio, you actually have to make the argument that I had no choice because this opportunity was not available to me. So that's Ohio. Now, how that works in real life, because there's a huge gap between what the law says and how it gets applied and to whom it gets applied. But that's technically what's on the books. 
But one of my concerns, well, two concerns. One is that, you know, going back to what was his name who claimed the stand your ground, Zimmerman? Yeah, George Zimmerman, who murdered Trayvon Martin. After stalking him for like an hour or something. Anyhow, the stand your ground is completely shot through with a racial lens that, as Lee pointed out, you only have to think it's a threat reasonably. Like you have a reasonable idea that this is a threat. And so George Zimmerman said, yeah, well, I saw this black kid and that was threatening. And the jury's like, okay, sounds good to me. So I worry about that on the one side. But I wonder, did we not start in the wrong place here? Because the fact that I need a weapon in order to defend my home from invasion, let's say, leaving stand your ground aside, That already depends on the fact that there are so many weapons around in the first place. And if there weren't so many weapons around, then I wouldn't feel the need to have a weapon in my house in order to defend it. By the way, I think this is still valid. My gun ownership or the gun I own is more likely to be used against me than it is to be used against the home invader. So in a sense, this is, you know, Chekhov knew this. If there's a gun in the first act, it's going to be fired in the third act. (laughs) And so like if there, yeah. So I think we need to go one step back to if the Second Amendment weren't interpreted so liberally these days, would it make sense to say I need a weapon in my house to defend my home? Yeah, if I could, I think that there's another step back that we could take, right? So the situation that Rick is presenting us with is, I feel like I need a gun to protect my home because I presume that anyone who breaks into my home is armed with a firearm. I, I suppose there's a logic to that. But if we take another step back... Is there any piece of property that has the same value as a human life? Mm. It doesn't matter if a person comes into my house and they have a gun and they're not threatening my life. They're just there to steal my property or damage my property. That to me is not a legitimate reason for, again, a carte blanche permission to use deadly force. I'm sorry you lost your TV. I'm sorry whatever your house got broken into. But at the end of the day, whatever you lose in property is not worth another person's life, in my view. And I I get it that people are going to disagree with me about this. But I think that's really, to me, the root of the interpretive problem with the Second Amendment that we've seen over the last 30 years is that the expansion of this interpretation of the right to bear arms has been so hinged on protecting property that the fact that there are lives that are lost in the expansion of this so-called right just gets kind of lost in the shuffle. Well, I think there are three steps back we can take in one single leap. And I think the three steps back that we have to take, and Rick, you mentioned this, and this is an important part, right? You know, what exactly is the mechanism of the distribution of guns in this country? So we have to look at the firearms industry. Right. And we have to look at the ways in which the industry literally has flooded the society with dangerous weapons, be they handguns to high-powered, literally battlefield-ready rifles. But we also have to think very seriously about the ways in which, and right, Lee, you talked about the interpretation of the Second Amendment, and we certainly have to look at District of Columbia versus Heller 2008, which argues Mm -hmm. that Second Amendment says ownership of guns within the context of a well-regulated militia. Heller says, no, this is an individual right separate from being a part of an organized grouping, Mm state-based grouping. So we have to look at the corporatization. 
the capitalization of firearms. We certainly have to look at the ways in which laws have been manipulated and interpreted, which further encourages and supports the capitalization of firearms. I think we, we have to take very seriously the psychological culture which gets created that fits perfectly into this triangle of death. TM, I'm copywriting that. Triangle of death, that's me. You heard it here first. That's my term. And we can certainly talk about the historical moment, but what's been taking place for the past 40, 50 years is you're creating a society of Charles Bronson's from the movie Death Wish. You're creating mm-hmm. society of Bernie Getz's from the, the, the shooting of the, the subway young, shooting. The subway yeah. shooting in the 80s in New York. And you've basically created a society of white people who have been made to feel like there's nothing more existentially threatening to their existence than a person with a high percentage of melanin in their skin. Yeah, you're also creating a hyper trigger happy police force. Right, exactly, without a doubt. So all of this is driven by this construction of this dangerous racial other who will break into your home. And that's you know, not your property, right? I mean, Lee said there's nothing that we own that is worth risking one's life. Well, the, the fear isn't that someone's going to steal your stack of Jackson Brown CDs. But this is a figure that's been created. This is a being of such incredible racial animus and venom that they're not interested in taking your shit. They want to take your life. They want to consume your existence. I think that is a really good point that clearly has racialized dimensions in the United States, that there is this sort of racialized profile of, in particular, the black male criminal, that he's not only going to take your shit, he's also going to take your wife, he's also going to take your daughter, he's also going to do physical harm to you. But this is where I think the Castle Doctrine and the Stand Your Ground laws have amplified the kind of vagueness of their interpretation in order to avoid just saying straightforwardly, if someone comes in my house, even if they're not actually physically threatening me, even if my life is not in danger, I have a right to kill them because they might take my stuff. Now, what is in parentheses is, and rape my wife and marry my child. Right. But they don't actually say that. Right. And I think that's where we are. I mean, that's how we have 150 guns for every 100 people. So I think about this a lot in terms of Chicago, and Trump was constantly saying this, but it's still in the media that, you know, Chicago's really dangerous. And yes, so what was Trump's phrase in the inaugural? Uh, American carnage, right? But I don't get how that, I mean, I, I shouldn't say I don't get. It is interesting and I think important for us to understand that this then gets translated to Boise, Idaho or Sioux Falls, South Dakota or a place where there is no American carnage. Also, can I say the numbers for murders are worse in Indianapolis than they are in Chicago. So let's stop talking about Chicago. Let's start talking about Indianapolis. And Memphis. Yeah, for sure. But there's a way in which this fear is easily translated to a place where it ought not to have a home. And and yet it finds such an easy home. And by the way, I should have brought up this Chris Rock routine where he talks about school shootings. And he says, soon white families are going to send their kids to black schools in order to be safe. Because his joke is that those shootings happen in white schools. And I think, I mean, the numbers bear that out. But it's this ease of translation that I think is, I mean, I mean, obviously the racialization of the Second Amendment, of the Stand Your Ground, of the Castle Doctrine is prior to these interpretations of the law. 
Yeah, I I just want to make a quick point about how we imagine the threat in the United States. Because if we actually looked at the statistics, and I know they're lies, damn lies and statistics, right? (laughs) In in my mind, I'm laughing so loud and hard just at the thought (laughs) that people are actually going to do, I don't know, some level of quantitative research. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if we were going to imagine who our biggest threat is in terms of the likelihood of using guns and killing people... Of the three of us, Rick, it's you, yeah, right? Like it's sure. it's a white male. You are more likely to kill a lot of people in a very short amount of time. You are more likely to be stockpiling guns in your fancy schmancy home with your fancy schmancy drinks, right? Like you are, <laughs> you are more likely to storm the Capitol. You are more likely to be a part of a militia. So I think that we really do have to recognize that the imagined threat that drives the NRA in particular, but activists in favor of the expansion of gun rights, or at least antagonistic to the restriction of gun rights, in general, the imagined antagonist that they're fighting against is Charles. It's not you. It's certainly not me. Well, you know, we have to be very clear, because Rick, you may mention that you have this same racial paranoia that are in areas where you have little to no, very few Black people. But we have to think about the recent rise in anti-immigration or, or xenophobic rhetoric, right. because one of the great, brilliant possibilities of white supremacy is that it is, it is flexible. Right, that it does not necessarily depend. That's upon, adaptive. It's, it's yeah. adaptive, right? It does not necessarily depend upon sort of people of African descent, young men or old men who look like me. But as Trump said, as he came down that goddamn escalator, Mexico—they're not sending our best. They're sending rapists. They're sending killer. So now, for these rural areas that are seeing an influx of agricultural migrants who choose to stay and build lives in the areas, now we can alter and adapt this whole discourse to fit anybody that does not look like the paradigmatic normal figure of these rural areas in the middle of America. And Charles, that I think that's so important because if you think about Chicago during Prohibition, I mean, it was an actual battle zone. I mean, there, there were out and out battles on the streets, and yet there wasn't all this rhetoric, I better arm myself to protect myself. And I, I think that now... A lot of the shootings that happen within Chicago are a result of the fact that we have a fairly highly organized gang structure that is related to the insatiable desire, again, more among people like me than either of you two for heroin or crystal meth or Oxycontin. Oxycontin. And so, like... The delivery mechanism for this is this fairly structured gang organization, which then sometimes breaks out into fights over turf, just as during Prohibition. And yet, as Lee was pointing out, somehow a white guy like me in Dubuque now thinks he needs to arm himself because that's a threat. Well, I want to say this because I think you make a very good point. From what I understand, part of the problem of gun violence in Chicago are the delivery mechanisms, which are open carry, super loose or almost non-existent gun laws in Indiana. Yeah. So a lot of those arms are coming across the state lines and being sold these gangs. So that's a very real point. For me, and these are equally tragic in their effects, but I think there's a distinction that I need to make, which is if you're talking about violence as a part of a certain type of business transaction, organized gangs, drugs, that's horrible, it's tragic, 
too many people have lost their lives. But on a certain level, there's a brutality of capitalistic thought that almost makes that a rational decision mm. in terms of utilizing violence to achieve these business goals. Mm. Right? I don't agree with that. I'm not supporting that. But I'm saying that there's a particular logic, which I can understand, versus the fundamental like question I have. Like when Lee said to Rick, your type, your demographic is most likely to carry out this type of violence, carry out wide ranging assassinations to gather huge stockpiles of guns. My question becomes, what is it within that demographic that is driving this embrace of guns and violence versus this fairly deadly, tragic, but yet still pragmatic approach to violence that we see among some drug dealers, gang members within Chicago. And my final point is that back in the 90s, the CDC used to study violence as a disease. Right. Right. Keep track of numbers, keep track of perpetuators, so forth and so on. And one of the conclusions they arrived at was that white people were more likely to kill people they don't know. Or themselves. Or themselves than population, specifically African-Americans were. African-Americans were more than likely to kill people they know Mm. versus go out and kill strangers. But I think part of maintaining the mythology about the monopoly of violence that bodies of color or communities of color have is that you have to literally erase the knowledge of the amount of violence or the utilization or possession of guns that certain white people, white men of a certain age actually have. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email the audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So I'd like to turn for just a minute to talking about actual guns, in particular, high magazine guns, semi-automatic guns. These are always the guns that we see in mass shootings. And to me, there is absolutely no excuse for anyone to be able to own these guns. Statistics show that most Americans, when you talk about gun control, most Americans or the majority of Americans are in favor of at least two things. One, universal background checks. And two, the banning of high magazine firearms, right? right? And I just don't understand any arguments in favor of the private ownership of these types of weapons. One of the things that happened after the Newtown shooting is that this particular issue about high magazine, semi-automatic or automatic assault rifles came up. Also after the, you'll probably remember this, after the Las Vegas mass shooting there was the whole thing about bump stocks. So the idea here is that what we're talking about are specific technologies, specific firearms, that's only purpose is to kill as many human beings as possible in the shortest amount of time possible. So these are not used for hunting. 
they're not practical for self-defense unless you have an invading army coming into your house at some point. They're only used to kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible. I don't understand what the argument for this is, why we can't just ban them. But Lee, I think I would say that one argument on the other side is precisely this invading army question, because I think there's a not insignificant portion of, for lack of a better term, let's say the far right wing that will insist on the right to bear arms and particularly military grade weapons precisely because the United States government either is now or could be soon enough anti-American or unconstitutional and yet allowed to continue. And we need to arm ourselves in order to be able to take back our country. Okay, so I'm so glad that you said that because that, of course, is the argument. And here's what I would say in response to that. Any militia who thinks that they are big enough and well-armed enough to overthrow the United States government is delusional. Remember the nukes. <laughs> Flatly de- delusional. Black Hawk <laughs> helicopters. Yeah, you and your AR-15. You're not Rambo. Like, let's just go back to January 6th. Let's imagine that that entire mob was armed with the guns that I 100% know that they have at home. Right. Like that entire mob was armed. They would have taken over the Capitol building that day, but every one of them would have died. You know, it would have been Waco all over again. Right. Uh, There is no fighting the armed forces, the police forces, the military forces of the United States. So I really do think that continuing to carry forward this particular interpretation of the Second Amendment, which is that a well-organized militia is necessary for securing the liberty of citizens. Although I think, you know, if we were in the late 1700s, that might have been true. And maybe even up until the early 1900s, that might have still been true. But now that is just delusional to think that that is a legitimate argument for individual ownership of that level of weaponry. Well, I mean, one point, I think that that was a ludicrous argument back in the early days of the Republic. If you think about the ways in which the Whiskey Rebellion was suppressed, right? Yeah. Even if you have the group of local farmers and hunters and settlers, they still do not have the wherewithal to resist, at this point, a well-organized and battle-hardened army under George Washington. But I think that that whole romanticized justification is is bullshit. And I think there are other traditions that lay claim to armed self-defense that argue a very different point about the reality of how people have embraced the Second Amendment. I completely agree with you. But right now we're talking about people claiming that what the Second Amendment gives them a right to is to be armed as a nation would be armed individuals to be armed as a nation would be armed. And that's where, again, I want to go back to this specific issue of the high magazine guns, the automatic and semi-automatic weapons. I mean, the most common gun other than a handgun in the United States is an AK-47, right? And almost every single mass shooting of the last 20 years has been executed with an AK-47. Why is that legal? Like, why can we not take away those guns? I should also say that, I meant to say this in the last segment, but I think it's very unfortunate that the Newtown shooting happened while Obama was president. 
I think that that was a moment that the nation really was as close as they're ever going to be on solidarity for stricter gun control laws. The problem was, is that we had a black president and the NRA came out of the gate flooding the airwaves with Obama is going to take your guns. Obama is going to come take your gun. Like literally a black man is going to come and take your guns. And it doesn't matter that there were however many hundreds of white men in the Senate and in the House of Representatives and mayors and governors who were saying the same thing. Millions of white men and women who were saying the same thing in the United States who were heartbroken and devastated and traumatized as they should have been by what we just saw, which is children being gunned down in a school. But the message was, as horrible as this is, it's not as bad as a black man coming and taking your guns away from you. No, that certainly boosted the sales and whetted the appetite for this type of racialized targeting, without a doubt. But I mean, the very real, I think, answer to your question is, well, why do we see these weapons? I think it's the AR-15, more so than than the AK-47. Yeah, thank you. You're right, you're right. You know, because I know we're going to get some pro-Second Amendment people that really want us to be very clear about what is the exact type of gun. But you really have to look at the ways in which these political figures are facilitating this. Because I remember distinctly, and I think it was 2002, 2003, when George Bush allowed for the assault rifle weapons ban to, right. to fade, that he would not renew it despite representatives of police forces from around the country begging begging him, please don't let this expire. Please maintain and sustain the ban on assault weapons. And then we see the huge explosion of violence, right? But it's after the expiration of the assault weapons ban that we really begin to see the proliferation and unfortunately the normalization of these type of extremely dangerous, high impact attacks upon public facilities. So the solution to the obvious, and as Lee was pointing out earlier, the agreed upon by a majority of Americans problem we have with guns is not a reinterpretation of the Second Amendment, because now I'm seeing that to the extent that Lee's right, we just need to get rid of the Second Amendment. There is no legitimate right today for the citizens to be armed, either as a well-regulated militia or as the decision in Heller held that it's a private right, that there's no good ground for having a right to bear arms. I 100% agree. I know that people are going to lose their shitballs, but I 100% agree. I just want to go on the record as saying that I would 100% support the revocation, the annulment of the Second Amendment. I think that it is the worst of our amendments. It has made everything about this country worse. Now, that said, I also want to say that I am not anti-revolutionary violence. I think that obviously, I mean, maybe it's not obvious, but I should say that I think that we should opt for diplomatic, reasonable solutions before having to resort to violence. But I think that there are situations that demand revolutionary violence. But the idea that the Second Amendment is something that would be useful in what I'm calling revolutionary violence to me is absurd. If you are actually trying to overthrow a government, why do you need a constitutional right secured by that government to overthrow it? Right. It's, it's just ridiculous. Right. Well, I'm trying to distinguish between what is articulated as the original intent of the Second Amendment, 
So the fictional assertion is that people should have the right to arms in case they have to take on a government grown to despotic and tyrannical in its approach to the citizenry. This is how we maintain freedom over and against an autocratic system, you know, which arguably the colonists come out of as they move away from under the heel of the British monarchy. That seems to be a very different argument from we have the inherent right to overturn the government, self-defense versus revolution. And I think that the more contemporary argument presumes that we're moving toward tyranny, autocracy, based upon the ways in which we're seeing the traditional cultures of the United States, i.e. white, being undermined, the transformation of alterations in traditional, i.e. white, structures of power and control are being altered, the economics of traditional American, i.e. white life, are being transformed. And all of that is being read as, they're coming for your guns, they're coming for your wives, they're coming for your daughters. Well, and going back to Lee's point, it, I, I think it's really interesting is that even if I hold that position that the the government is coming for my guns or Trump is the actual president and so we're in this kind of unconstitutional interregnum or so on, at Lee's point I understood was in order to engage in the event of revolution, the last thing you need or want is permission. Because right. then it's not exactly. a revolution. And so the moment you're on the brink of revolution is the moment in which precisely you're rejecting all the rights that are granted by the, the current governmental structure. But then the second point to me is, okay, so then what happens at that revolutionary moment? Like, where do I get my hands on guns? And I want to say, people, look around the world. It seems like no revolutionary movement is having a difficult time getting guns. I would like to dissociate the question of international arms trafficking and so on from the question of the Second Amendment and therefore also from this question of the revolutionary overthrow of a government. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I just want to say that if I had forced myself to put myself in the mindset of someone who legitimately believes that the United States is moving towards this tyrannical state and that I might need to rise up armed with my fellow citizens to protect the freedom of citizens. Again, I don't need the Second Amendment to prepare for that. I should be preparing for that independent of the operations of this increasingly tyrannical state. And so I imagine somebody might say, yeah, but if the state is going to come and get your guns, then you can't even be prepared when that state moves towards tyranny. Then I would say, well, but then you're living in an ordered state. It's kind of a shit or get off the pot moment. If you want to revolt, do it. But you don't get to just sit around and prepare for revolt all the time when what your preparations do actually create a disordered state. Because your sons take your weapons to the school and start shooting people up. Exactly. Once every episode, as a public service to hotel bar sessions regular listeners... Your HBS hosts offer a quick-fire segment of random facts that you can use to spice up your future cocktail party conversations. Today's random fact is, we shake hands to show we're unarmed. A random fact, Juneau, Alaska, is the U.S. city with the least amount of sunshine. 
about 30% of the days. Seattle, known for being rainy and cloudy, is number 10 on the list. Here's an interesting fact. The CIA headquarters has its own Starbucks. Its receipts say store number one instead of Starbucks, and its workers actually need an escort to leave their work posts. And also, maybe not surprisingly, baristas don't write names on the cups. I was just wondering if we could talk for a little bit about this really great book that I was turned on to by Rick, who told me about an interview that Dahlia Lithwick, the host of the Amicus Brief podcast, did with Emory University professor Carol Anderson, where Carol Anderson talked about her recent book, which is titled The Second. Basically, what The Second discusses is the long anti-Black history of gun laws in the United States and how race tends to define how we talk about both gun rights and gun control today. It's an interesting book, which I haven't finished, but I did try to get through as, as much of it as I can. One of the really interesting things about it is that Anderson is definitely not having a scholarly discussion about the Second Amendment. What she's talking about is the genealogy of the development of Second Amendment interpretations over time. But her basic argument is just that all discussions about gun rights have never been intended to apply to African-American in the United States. And one of the very powerful examples that she gives is she says, explain to me the difference between Kyle Rittenhouse, who walks down the street carrying an AR-15 and gets high-fived and congratulated and given water by the police in the midst of a protest, like in the midst of actual community distress and community violence. And Tamir Rice, who was a child playing in a park with a toy gun, which, by the way, even if it was a real gun, he was not doing anything illegal, who is shot dead. And Ohio is an open carry state. No, that's that is exactly her point. And she makes the same point about Philando Castile. As a matter of fact, this is how she opens her book is with the story of Philando Castile and Philando Castile's girlfriend, I think, at the time or partner who was in the car when he was shot by the police for, by the way, just announcing that he had a permit and that he was carrying and that he was reaching into his pocket to get his license and was immediately shot by the police. And his wife, or again, I'm sorry, his partner, wife, girlfriend, was in the car and said, why did you shoot him? Like, what did you shoot him for? And Carol Anderson's argument in this book is that because it was never meant for black men to have a right to bear arms. It seems that this takes us to an interesting divergence in terms of our conversation, because the episode in general, we're talking about guns. And because of the ways in which the Second Amendment has been interpreted or manipulated and the attachment to certain type of right-wing politics and, and marketing, now we're talking about the Second Amendment. And I think she does an amazing work. You know, hold on to your shorts. It's an amazing bit of critical race theory mm. that she's doing with this work. So I'm certainly in many ways in agreement with much of what we said in today's conversation. But because of the points that are brought up by Professor Anderson 
And because of a history that I'm a part of and a tradition that I'm coming out of, my idea about role and importance, and as we said earlier, the need for guns links and comes out of a very different direction, which is the fact that black people have been subject to, be it state, be it organized, or be it just random mob violence since before the beginning of the society. And there's a tradition on the part of African-Americans, which may not be shared by other African-descended populations in this country, but there's a tradition in which armed self-defense has been as a normative position as casting a vote for an elected official. And depending on the historical moment, armed self-defense is probably a more likely form of social civic protection than having the right to cast a vote for an elected office. So, Charles, would it be correct to summarize your position as something like, in the abstract, that is, outside of any concrete situation whatsoever, our earlier conversation made the argument that there really is no need for anyone to own or bear arms. However, we're not in that abstract situation. We are in a concrete situation as, I think, Lee nicely summarized Professor Anderson's argument We're in a situation in which, in fact, the Second Amendment has been used precisely against African-Americans possessing weapons, precisely because for African-Americans to possess guns would give them also a kind of resistive capacity that the dominant white culture didn't want. And she's an equalizer of sorts. That's right. That's right. You know, in an interesting moment, she also points out how the Black Panthers in California were very careful about registering their weapons and, and knowing the gun laws and when they could carry and where they could carry and so on. But this was also their theme. Like, hey, we need to protect ourselves precisely Precisely because the Second Amendment isn't ours, it's theirs, and they're using it against us. There is a very real tradition of armed self-defense and calls for armed self-defense and organizing to defend black communities uh, and black neighborhoods, which I think this normative, bourgeois, liberal African-American political ethos has completely tried to ignore. So it's not just the Black Panther Party, it's the Deacons for Defense, it's Robert Williams of the North Carolina NAACP in the late 50s and 60s, it's Ida B. Wells in Memphis mm-hmm. in the post-Reconstruction era who has the great quote that the Winchester rifle should have a place yeah. of honor in every Negro family and household. Mm-hmm. Or it goes as early as 1827, 1828 with David Walker writing his appeal which argued for the use of violence on the part of the enslaved to overturn slavery and to destroy the plantocracy. But that's a tradition that we've gotten away from, and it's also a result of having gotten away from, I think, certain forms of a black nationalist organizing and theorizing in regard to the political state of African Americans. So you're right. I like the way you framed that, Rick, that the first half of our conversation is really this very interesting, um, not abstract, but an attempt at a universalist position on all these questions versus what Anderson is showing, and I hope what I'm successfully arguing is, no, no, let's embody this. What does it mean to be literally on the other end of the gun? I mean, I do think that we're leaving out one really important part of Anderson's argument, though, which is that even when Black Americans arm themselves legally, safely, and for very good reasons, it is nevertheless the case that when we look at who goes to jail for killing people, 
it is Black Americans and not white Americans. Even Black Americans who claim stand your ground or claim the Castle Doctrine end up being convicted of homicide more often than white Americans do. I suppose what I would say is this, in response to what we're talking about right now. I worry sometimes that we think about arming ourselves in the United States as a kind of mutually assured destruction strategy, a a national equilibrium. It's It's like, there are lots of guns out there. I need to have a gun so that I can protect myself. Or at least people will be disinclined Even if I'm not eager to use my gun, if I show it, if I threaten it, if people know I have it, right, then people will be less inclined to enact violence upon me. But the problem is that we live in a country where this mutually assured destruction game is not being played with Winchester rifles. It's being played with AR-15s. And AR-15s that kids can get a hold of, that people who have no permits can get a hold of, that people who have no business having permits can get a hold of, people who are stalkers, people who are domestic abusers, people who have serious psychological challenges. And so in the meantime, while we're having this discussion about everyone should be able to own a gun, and again, I think this is part of this MAD strategy As we're having our discussions about the Second Amendment at that abstract level, what's actually happening is that more people are dying and they're dying not in proportionate numbers demographically, just as it is the case that people are going to jail for owning and using guns, not in proportionate numbers demographically. It's as if we've been in this fairy tale about guns where the way that we talk about guns and the way that we talk about gun rights and gun control it is entirely divorced from the actual lived reality of America in the 21st century. And I think that goes back to our earlier conversation about the people who are owning guns and stockpiling guns to protect the freedom of the citizenry, which is bullshit. It goes back to what Charles was just talking about, which is a long and very legitimate tradition of African-Americans arguing for gun ownership as self-protection in many ways, ignoring the fact that this puts more black people in jail and more black well, people in the grave. Well, no, no, wait, and, wait. And, I, I think that's a difference, though, because I think the processes that you're describing are the ways in which black people have been subject to misapplication or unfair laws. I'm talking about a tradition that's politically engaged where you have black people, hey, look, this is our community. We're a small rural community. We know that local whites have the propensity to engage in certain types of violence against us. So in lieu of an actual fair criminal justice system or a policing force that will curb the fact that some of those who are engaging in acts of violence against us are members of the criminal justice community, we have but this one option in terms of trying to fend off and defend our property. You're flattening out the role of guns in the lives of particular communities. You're describing the ways in which the state, as a part of a white nationalist and white supremacist order, suppresses and marginalizes and unfairly, unjustly prosecutes black people versus black people having agency and making a particular decision to use one of many tools at hand to maintain a certain integrity to their lives. I think those are very different things. I'm not sure I agree with flattening those out and saying they're all the same thing. Okay, so I'm 100% not flattening those out. What I'm saying is it doesn't matter if you're talking about a big metropolitan city or if you're talking about a remote rural area. Would you say that the proliferation of gun ownership does not, in fact, put more black people in jail and more black people in the grave? More guns put more black people in jail and more black people in the grave. That is flatly true. 
I mean, it doesn't matter why people own them or where they live or whatever. That's just factually true. I, I would say that qualified immunity puts uh, a healthy number of black people in jail. If we talk about the ways in which police forces are not being held accountable for the almost daily killing of unarmed black people. And we've used those examples earlier. And so I would agree with you, but that's totally sidestepping my question. I mean, there are lots of other things that we could say also put more black people in jail and more black people in the grave. But I'm asking you a very obvious question. Does the proliferation of guns in America put more black people in jail and in the grave? And the answer is yes, period. No, I mean, I would love to go back and and we can talk about post-Reconstruction when you didn't have really the same level of proliferation of weapons. And we saw... The question is about today. When you're talking about guns specifically, I'm talking about there is a tradition of white violence, state violence against black people, which has always been putting black people in jail or in the ground. But I'm stipulating all of that. I'm agreeing and stipulating all of that. But like, I feel like you're pushing back and saying I'm flattening things out by saying there's also a downside to more guns. For the no, no, I, no, I, I agree. And they, there absolutely is. No, no, I, I agree. There is guns in Don't get me wrong. I'm not a Second Amendment enthusiast or supporter. I am critical of the Second Amendment for the reasons that Professor Anderson lays out. 100%. Right, 100%. I am critical of the Second Amendment for the ways in which it's been used as a political prop. I'm critical of the Second Amendment for the ways in which the, the firearms industry has manipulated elected officials with donations and all this propaganda. I'm critical of it in terms of how it's otherwise. I think the Second Amendment, as you said, is one, if not the most decidedly dangerous amendments to the Constitution. But on the other hand, and once again, we find ourselves at a crossroads. I also think that marginalized or colonized or subjugated communities do have the right to exercise as many forms of agency to protect themselves against these suppressive powers as are available to them. I read Fanon. Now, do I have romantic belief in, in some overarching revolution? No, I do not. But I also believe that even at the individual level, people have the right to say, I'm choosing to protect my life versus surrendering it without any opposition to this violent offender. One of the important points I see Charles makes goes, I think, full circle back to Kyle Rittenhouse, because I think Charles uh, a few moments ago said, well, look at the way in which law enforcement welcomed the violent actions of a, a white supremacist to come into Kenosha for the sole purpose of killing black people, that there is a it's not even a link. It is the way in which law enforcement is uh, part of white supremacy and the Second Amendment is part of white supremacy are all one and the same. And the Kyle Rittenhouses and so on and so on are already killing black people, are already imprisoning black people. And what I hear Charles saying is, wait a second, isn't there a space to think that black communities should arm themselves in order to prevent that? Because it's going to happen anyhow. Yeah. And I just want to say, Charles, that I think given our very unfortunate and very non-ideal circumstances that we're living in right now, that everything that you're saying is correct. I'm just saying that I think that Another way to look at it is that if we repealed the Second Amendment and took away all the guns, we wouldn't have to make those kinds of arguments. And by the way, I feel like Carol Anderson's book, The Second, which is primarily focused on the way that the Second Amendment disproportionately disadvantages black people in the United States, the same book could have been written about women. 
Mm. And that, mm. th- that less women would be in jail or, well, n- not in jail, less women would be in the grave if sure. there were less guns. Period, flat, that is it, yeah. period. I wouldn't say like less women would be in jail or in the grave, but less women would be in the grave or living in absolute terror. Yeah, yeah I want to add one last point in terms of our reading list. Mary Frances Berry has got a great book from 1994 called Black Resistance, White Law, A History of Constitutional Racism in America. And I think the type of argument that Carol Anderson is laying down, Barry initiates in this text. Mm. So if you're interested in these types of readings, Mary Frances Barry, Black Resistance, White Law is is a great work in this vein. Listeners, we're virtually toasting you here at the hotel bar. But since we can't put our next drink on your tab, we figure the least you can do is follow this podcast on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off air thoughts. Charles is at CF Peterson, that's at C underscore F Peterson, and Peterson is spelled with an O. Rick is at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor is abbreviated DR and Lee is spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now on the off chance that you weren't just furiously scribbling notes while I said that, you can visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know about how to follow and listen to us there. Now, back to our conversation. Oh, I think Frangelica is starting to shut it down. She's cutting off the lights. And you know Frangelica's packing. She's packing. (laughs) Right, these mean streets. And Frangelica is like, this is my castle, bitches. That's right. Stand to my ground. So it's last call. I, I think we've had an extremely passionate and engaged and thoughtful conversation. I suspect this conversation is not over. And I, <laughs> it, it feels like to me there may be a future episode on nonviolence. Yeah, I think that we really should talk about violence and nonviolence. I know that we're all big fans of Fanon. Uh, we're Fanon <laughs> fans. But I also know that we're all big fans of MLK Jr. and Nelson Mandela. And so, yeah. So, Charles, I think that you are in the hot seat next week. So what are we going to be talking about next week? We are going to be talking about music. We're going to be looking at the ways in which, you know, the role that music plays in our lives for positive and negative. How do we as embodied beings respond to it? We're going to be talking about maybe some of our favorite songs. And hopefully we can squeeze a performance out of our local songbird, Dr. Lee Johnson. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, isn't Rick our resident singer? because I heard him do a great cover of Julia Kristeva covering Prince. And I, I literally have, I, I've almost never recovered from that yeah. Sonic experience. So, I think Sonic experience is probably the best way to describe that. <laughs> but next week, we're going to be talking about music. That's going to be great. Yeah. Yeah. So I will catch you guys next week. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye.